Infections are infectious Like a dog scratched ear But pleasure is high Welcome to the Box Tunnel Survivors Group, a place for those affected by the issues raised in the TV show, Being Human. My name is Michael and I've killed more people than you've met. Although the police are listening, they were all accidents, and the dog did it. For this special episode, we will be marking the coronation of our great King Charles. We will be exploring who will be playing at the party. We will have an interview with the sycophantic Nicholas Witchell. And there's a chat with Paul Burrell to talk about Diana, because he doesn't do that enough. Not really, just joking. We are actually chatting about Series 2, Episode 3 of being human, long live the king. The vampire hierarchy are actually probably a bit more popular than the royal family are at the moment. So let's get on with long live the king. Joining me for the first time on the Box Tunnel pod is Lauren. Uh, thanks for coming on. Hello, thank you for having me. You are, it's fair to say, a bit of a stand-up comedy fan and a comedy fan in general. Um, yeah, <laughs> it's probably yeah. fair to say that. It's prob- probably fair to say that. And I know you went to see Colin Holt quite a few times, who played Crumb in Series 5, didn't you? I have. I think it's about four or five times. I think I've lost count. Have you, have you seen his latest show? Yes. You yeah. have? He came to Norwich yeah, and done it. Ah, see, I've seen him posting a lot of Instagram on Instagram about it, so yeah. In honour of that, I thought I'd ask you, what are your three favourite comedic moments in Being Human? Oh, <laughs> when you asked me this um, via message, I honestly didn't know what to say because there's so many good comedic moments in it. Um, but I think one of the ones that sort of shot straight to my head was the Who Wants Some of My Chair and Plant Scene. So the chair one was... That was in the funeral parlour, wasn't it? And yeah. then the plant was when George and Nina went to go and get Adam. So that was one of my favourite ones, just because <laughs> he thought he could defeat people with a chair and plant. Yeah. <laughs> um, As you do. Yeah. Um, my second one was actually one that we're going to probably talk about in a minute, is the real hustle scene. Yeah. I wondered if that was going to crop up. Yeah. It's just it's just an iconic scene, <laughs> just how it escalates. Um, and then you've just spoken about Colin Holt, and actually the third one involves him. So it was the Series 5, Episode 4 um, sort of montage scene. So when okay. Al's with Crum, sort of on the beach, and then doing the hoovering and trying to make him sort of learn how to control his urges with the um like Bobby training scene. So when Tom's sort of teaching him how to work at the hotel and how to live a normal life. Yeah. See, I, I don't want to say you're predictable, but I thought the scene tonight was gonna to pop up and I knew Colin Help would appear in it. <laughs> yeah. 
<laughs> so okay. how, how did you get into the show in the first place? Um, I just happened to stumble across it. <laughs> um, I think one Sunday night I was just sort of channel flicking and came up with BBC Three and I think, because I've been trying to think which episode it is, um, one of the earliest memories of watching Being Human was sort of this episode slash next episode. Yeah. Um, but, and yeah. was interested in it. And then I think the first full episode I sort of watched was sort of six or seven. And then I decided to buy the DVDs. And since then, I've been sort of engrossed in it. Yeah, all, all these years later. Yeah. The big question, how do you identify as a vampire, a werewolf or a ghost? Um, that's quite a difficult one. I've always loved vampires, so I would say a vampire. Yeah. Because um, I can be a bit short-tempered and sort of a bit... <laughs> um, but I think I'd probably be an awful vampire. <laughs> <laughs> I'd probably quite enjoy it at first, but then go, actually, no, I can't deal with it. I think there's a difference between being short-tempered and killing a lot of people. Yeah, well, <laughs> I'm not going to finish that sentence. <laughs> um, okay, so if you were killed, stroke, died today of natural causes, that'd be a bit weird if you died of natural causes today, hmm. and you were stuck in limbo, what would your unfinished business be? Um, <laughs> probably just finishing off Sort of my Netflix watch list because I've got <laughs> so much on it to watch because I always end up going back to sort of old faithfuls like being human instead of actually watching new stuff. Mm. So yeah, I do that. I would say I'm guilty of that. <laughs> the, that's the weird, the weird thing. When I came up with this question, I thought there'd be a lot of exciting things happening here. We've had finished our crafts, read some books. And now you now you said read some net and uh, watch some Netflix. <laughs> yeah, yeah, we're, we're all sort of a similar thing, in it? Sort of creative or watching and yeah books and stuff. All right, we'll crack on with series two, episode three, "Long Live the King." It aired on twenty fourth of January two thousand and ten. Was directed by Colin Teague and written by Toby Whithouse and Lucy Catherine. And other than the main Series 2 players, we have a newcomer in Ian Paulson Davies, who plays Chief Constable Wilson. And it's fair to say, I think this is a bit of a classic episode. It is, yeah. Um, when I first watched it, I think it's probably because of my age, I didn't sort of like it as much. But as mm. I've got older and I've watched it more and more, it's probably one of my favourite episodes. Yeah, I, 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 especially going through it and taking notes, I just thought, oh my God, there's so much happening in this one, isn't there? Yeah, and you don't actually realise until you rewatch it and take notes. <laughs> <laughs> and I know you liked taking notes. You loved it, didn't you? <laughs> it took me back to being at school, which I didn't enjoy, but I enjoyed watching the episode a few times. So. See, I want my guests to suffer. <laughs> All right, we start, of all places, in Bristol in 1666. Uh, we are deep underground. Scared women and children are surrounded by what looks like to be a group of religious zealots. Uh, they're holding crosses and man reads, Demons, bloodsuckers, incubi, spreaders of the great pestilence. 
You have been tried in front of God and those and, and this country and found guilty of witchcraft, heresy, satanic ritual, a collusion with Beelzebub and bringing disease and sorrow. And a wonderful little moment is when he asks for the flame to be nearer so he can read it. <laughs> I did write that bit. I love that bit. It's just, it's just genius. This bloodshed that's about to happen in this little slapstick comedy moment. Yeah. You are about to be destroyed. A man is dragged onto a table. He pronounces, your teeth will be smashed from your skull as a warning to the other devils and your head will be removed from your body. And then he goes, mm. no, that's it, actually. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it's, just, it's brilliant. Because it's just that humour in sort of the worst part of history. Well, one of the worst bits of history, the witch hunts and sort of all that. And they've just added humour to it just to make it less chilling, I guess. Yeah, and it's a very vibrant, I'd say surprising flashback because even though this is relatively new and being human in terms of flashbacks, it's all involved characters we know. So this is this is quite a shock the first time you watch it to go, why are we in 1665? What's going on here? It's, it's interesting. And then obviously later on we see why we see it. The mood doesn't change much further as we go back to the modern day and in the shadow of Clifton's suspension bridge, a jogger finds the trail of blood and two... Well, one's definitely dead and one's one's gasping for life uh, bodies in the woods. And it's... We go back to terrible stand-up. It's always the joggers that find the bodies, isn't it? Eh? Eh? It's always the joggers. Mitchell, clearly promoted from mock duty, is in the hospital, but he, Lucy rushes past with a team and Mitchell instantly knows what's happened to the body on it. Uh, we get a police announcement from Chief Constable Wilson, as we soon come to know him. The generic, please come forward for, for information, nothing to be alarmed about. And a journalist asks, what do you say to those who stipulate that there are now vampires living in Bristol? His response, hot milk and an early night. He's also forgetting to have a steak under your pillow. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah, it's it's brilliant just how they're sort of guessing that there's vampires, but they actually have no idea that there are vampires in Bristol <laughs> and lots of them. In the tabloids, they're probably running it as a, a little paragraph in page 10. Uh, Mitchell plays detective cleaner once again, nosing around the ward and finding Marcus one of the victim's bed. Suddenly we cut to Mitchell starting to pull out the wires from the machines and then Lucy walks in on him. <laughs> but thankfully he was just fantasising about it and he wasn't really doing it. But he's kind of locked in this weird praying pose. And she catches I think him. It, yeah, I think it's quite a subtle change in the colours because it does... Even now, when I watch it, it does. Unless you look for the colours in the in the fantasy sequence, they're slightly dimmer and a bit greyer. Yeah. But other than that, there's not a lot of difference. Yeah, I noticed that. It's quite interesting how they chose to do that because it's sort of you sort of watch it and you go, "Is it actually him doing it, or is it a sort of a dreamy sort of vision thing?" And it just, I mean, much as Mitchell does some weird things, that would be out of character for him to do that. Yes. 
yeah, so Lucy states there are a lot of CTT, CTD patients trying to have a chat with the Almighty before they pop their clogs. CTD stands for circling the drain in Doctor Speak. <laughs> Weirdly, like Lucy, I find in the scene is really affable here. She's blaming like working conditions on Thatcher and having a bit of a joke. And then we learn that Marcus, uh, his girlfriend who died, Lucy is insistent that this is a murder inquiry. Despite all the evidence that, that people around her are saying, she says it's a murder inquiry. Is she covering up? Does she think, well, she obviously does know that there's vampires about. So is she covering it so Mitchell doesn't know she knows? Or does she think that it is genuinely a murder? She's just playing a very clever game, isn't she? Yeah. And I've been thinking, the attack on Marcus, she says that he's an IT student. Mm-hmm. Was it actually a failed sort of vampire turning or was it just a genuine attack on people? Yeah. Because an IT person would be quite interesting and quite good to have, I think. Uh, she makes leave for a call and again, as she leaves, she asks Mitchell out on a date while talking about an anal abscess. Yeah. Sexy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's uh, quite a pick-up line. Perhaps all this constitutes dirty talk in hospital, I don't know. Mm, not from my experience. <laughs> That's true, actually. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> You've never flirted with a fellow colleague about anal abscesses? No, fortunately. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, yes, uh, Mitchell says he's busy tonight and Lucy takes the hint and kind of just walks off, disappointed again. Uh, back at the pink house, a depressed George is hiding in his bed and Annie is trying to motivate him. The house is out of tea bags and milk and, as Annie says, strangely purchasing pyramid tea bags is a touch awkward when you're a ghost. George asks where Mitchell is and Annie bemoans the fact that he's never around and doesn't do any ha- housework. And then she goes, do you want to talk about Nina? About Nina dumping you. And he squeals like a little child. Not really. <laughs> uh, Annie picks up some paper by the side of his bed. My heart yearns for your fragrant hair. <laughs> some really bad poetry. George snatches it off. I'm a terrible poet and I'm a terrible boyfriend. So yeah, it's really weird how George has gone through such a range of emotions already. And we're only at the start of episode three of series two. But it, this series is not kind on him, is it? No. He does have a bit of a, a hit, character-wise, bless him. <laughs> There's a knock on the door, and George look, uh, Annie looks out the window, and it's Hugh, and George reluctantly answers it with an invisible Annie by his side. Hugh is asking where Annie is. Um, George, not interested, couldn't care, he's got his own shit going on. She left a note, just the headlines really, not coming back, not Hugh's fault. <laughs> I love that, and then he's he's just not that bothered really and he's no. more interested in going and having a shower and having a shave yeah. Hugh's on about yeah Hugh bemoans his love life and talks about his ex-girlfriend Kirsty. then we cut to Mitchell stumbling across Kara in the subway I'm an orphan now since your pet killed our brave captain Kara says <laughs> Mitchell is after information and he says to Kara in no uncertain terms the killing has to stop you understand We can't cover it up. There's no process anymore. And then something comes to his mind. He says, round up everyone tonight at the old church. You might need to narrow it down, Mitchell. 
all churches are old. Then Annie charges in on George on the toilet, and despite being ushered out, it makes no real difference when the door has a bloody window on it. This, yeah, I hate this scene because it just makes me feel really just like, oh. <laughs> yeah, I never got that. Every time I've watched it, it's like it's. I know it's frosted glass, but you're still going to see people. Yeah, you see people on the toilet, in the shower, in the bath. It just makes me feel a bit like. <laughs> bit weird. A bit cringy. Annie wants to get Hugh back together with Kirsty and wants to take George along for the ride. Oh God, do I have to, George says. Another thing about this, George, I know he's a werewolf, but he literally washes his hands for about two seconds. Yeah, he wouldn't have got on very well during COVID, would he? <laughs> this whole <laughs> this whole scene gives me the yick purely because of the, the whole bathroom-based stuff. <laughs> <laughs> Yes, so Annie convinces him, I need this, Annie says. They're going to come for me again. You know that, George. The men from the other side. I think she's kind of playing a bit of emotional manipulation on George here too. Obviously, after the events of the last episode, to to try and help Annie along. Yeah, I never thought of it like that. But another thing like I was wondering with this is, after what happened with Saul, obviously Annie has turned death down. Well, technically twice now, because... She escaped Saul dragging her into the door. So they're pissed off with her anyway. What awaits Saul on the other side of that door? Because they're going to be so pissed off with him. He's not going to be in for a good time, is he? No, I don't think he'll have much fun over there. So Annie says, everything I touch gets tainted somehow. So Mitchell meets up with the chief constable on the bridge. I assume you're the new Herrick, he says. Not even standing in. I'm a representative, Mitchell replies. We have a situation, and he says, Too bloody right you do, the press are all over this. Why can't you guys stick to the homeless? So Mitchell just wants and kind of an arrangement along the terms that Herrick had. Herrick was a despotic ginger arsehole, but he had a backbone, and I'm not seeing that in you. Yeah, it's interesting, because Herrick and Mitchell, are obviously Herrick's Mitchell's maker, but they are two completely different identities. Yeah, and I think what's interesting, the storyline could have just ended with Herrick dying, but I like the fact in Series 2 they evolve on that, because they mentioned Herrick quite a lot, but they evolve on some of the things that Herrick built. And this episode with the police, we kind of see behind the scenes of the corruption and the bribery and the money involved in keeping the police quiet about vampires. And as as Wilson says, I'm a chief constable. I'm on first name terms with the shitting home secretary. And you're a bloody monster. Who the fuck is going to listen to you? Yeah, and, and the, Wilson asks about the state of the money. And Mitchell replies, we made a couple of good investments in the 1800s. And he says, you're going to need it. I've got an extension to finish, not to mention the wife's bloody eBay bit. <laughs> <laughs> it, that sort of dates it, because now it would be an Amazon habit. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Mitchell asks about the victim and he says, and Mick Wilson replies, pray for brain damage. Without Coroner Quinn on board, this is an academic. And he storms off giving an arrogant glance back. I I really liked, I I think it's a great performance of of Constable Wilson because he's such an arsehole and so arrogant. But I really liked that he's walking away from the bridge. He gives this 
flick back with his face and looking glance at Mitchell. And that, that to me that is that doesn't seem like it was scripted. It seems like he was just having a little moment and they kept it in. Yeah. I don't think I've actually noticed that glance. Yeah, like, he, he kind way. of walks away and then just looks back and sh- shoots to look at Mitchell. Like it, it, it kind of reminds me. Not, it's not quite. It's not as funny of the scene in Hot Fuzz when the two Andes kind of disappear from the screen and then come back on. I don't know why. It always gives me that kind of vibe. I like the shot of, also with this scene. It's scanning away from the bridge because then it's just Mitchell alone on the bridge, which I think is very symbolic. At the old church, which I can confirm is old and churchy, Mitch, Mitchell walks through a room of rowdy vamps and nobody is listening to him and the daisy pops up. I was at a loose end. I thought this might be amusing. He gets quite a lot of back chant, really, from people and he shouts, Quiet! The killing has to stop. The old system that allowed you to, that doesn't exist anymore. Clara chips in with, so what are we supposed to do? Go clean, renounce blood. Again, this all falls on deaf ears. Do you people have any fucking idea who I am? My name is John Mitchell and I've killed more people than you've met. If I can do it, so can you. They're not taking it seriously. They do a rendition of Amy Winehouse's rehab. He hasn't got the respect that Herrick has, has he? No. And it's probably not warranted yet because he's sort of been in the background. He's not been in the forefront like Herrick was. He's sort of been trying to live a human life, whereas Herrick did the opposite. Yeah. Apart from the police bit. And those vampires don't respect the fact that he's been trying to go clean. They're all about the blood and killing, whereas Mitchell's just wanting a normal human life. Mitchell says, carry on killing. And you know what that means? Mass persecution, execution pyres in Trafalgar Square. And referencing Herrick, Daisy says you can't change them. A shark can only ever be a shark. Herrick's ghost weighs heavy on this episode, definitely. It really does. I I wrote down that she sort of mirrored what he'd said back in series one. Yeah. Boundaries are fine, she says. And what you're talking about is changing our nature. Daisy is standing up to Mitchell as is to be expected. But about him, she states, there are a few false starts, but it was fine because someone would come in and hose hose the walls down and str- and straighten the paintings and bury the bones. She's, again, talking about Herrick. Yeah, because he was the one that would clear everything up if Mitchell did wrong or if any of the other vampires did wrong. And I also like that little speech from Daisy because it's exactly what we see in episode five of this series in the, fl- in the flashback with Herrick. Yes, it <laughs> is, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Although Herrick does tell him to do it, Herrick wasn't the one doing it. He was the Herrick was ordering him about. But Daisy's right in this. The only reason we're having this conversation is because of you and your vendetta with Herrick. Once again, a circumstance forced upon us. It's a speech worthy of a politician by Daisy, and uh, Mitchell can't really respond. He's got nothing against it. No, he's not really got a leg to stand on because <laughs> he was the one that basically created the situation by letting George kill Herrick. Mitchell says there are people I need to talk to but in the meantime we make a deal and I love the moment when someone shouts no deal (laughs) (laughs) I think I only heard that today on a rewatch so I thought I'd sort of sit and have a quick rewatch and I did I I love it just every time I've actually uh, been in the audience for deal or no deal a couple of times don't ask why just I have and 
once, the, the second time that I did it, I was sat next to the person, you know, the wife, partner, friend in the audience. I was sat next to that person. Now, I'm not, I don't like being on camera. Every two minutes, Noel would be looking it up and the camera would be focused right on the person right next to me. And I just wanted to like, no. <laughs> but just to I, I'm going to say it now. I don't care about my street cred. I love Deal or No Deal. Yeah, I quite like it. And yeah, it's, it's it's coming back. Come on, it's no Noel. No, true. I, I, my name is Michael and I'm a fan of Deal or No Deal. I'm glad <laughs> that's out of the way. Right, so Mitchell demands on them, you will not feed, and if anyone steps out of line, I'll kill you myself. Oh, he storms out and into the house as the other two are in the living room. Now we go to one of your favourite moments, and I think generally most Being Human fans, one of their favourite moments as well. Yeah, it's just truly Uh, iconic. Mitchell's into the house and Annie is sat there. George is lying down and he says we and she says we've been having a house meeting and a curious Mitchell asks why he wasn't invited and that leads to Annie's passive aggressive well if you were ever here then you, we would have invited you. They could have just sent him a text and said <laughs> yeah. we need you. And George says you don't meeting. buy any buy any food you never hoover I don't think you even know what a pair of marigolds is I don't do marigolds and he settles the situation <laughs> down in a bit motherly way we've lost sight of each other we need to bond. We need to talk. Mitchell suggests they just go out one night and get absolutely hammered. In George and Mitchell's mind, that's problem solved. And Annie is furious about this. That's it. Mitchell then offers to watch The Real Hustle. And he's flicking through the TV stations and has a panic that it isn't on. 10.30. That's Real Hustle time. A fucking child knows that. It drives me insane when they move things around. And then George is whining and whining about, why can't I just have one good thing? <laughs> I saw a preview. <laughs> they were going to do a preview a con on the cash, cash point. And Mitchell looks so heartbroken. Really? I would have loved that. You <laughs> bastards. The way he throws the remote across the room. Oh, it's just brilliant. George is crying. Mitchell, mass murdering vampire, comes in in a massive drop wearing a pair of marigolds. <laughs> It's just one of my favourite scenes. Just every time I watch it, it makes me laugh. Everything is so perfect about it, isn't it? Yeah, it just goes from a simple conversation that just escalates to (laughs) to marigolds. And I think the fact that this scene follows the church scene, what we've just seen, that we've gone from one extreme of the other with Mitchell. There's one scene where he's trying to keep the vampires in line to not spill out and be uncovered. And then the next scene, he's in the house being bemoaned at because he's not doing the washing up. You you go from that big scale to the microcosm of just household politics and friends. The way this little domestic scene in the living room also keeps changing. The fact that George did a little jibe about women think they know what they're talking about, so in touch with their emotions, and then they're having massive childish drops about a TV show not being on. It just works on every level. And the way that Annie was in control, and then... All of a sudden, had two unruly children. <laughs> <laughs> He's lost complete control of of it. And, and props to Aiden. I mean, they're all brilliant in the scene, but props to Aiden Turner who can do that intensity of the of the church scene and then come in. I don't do marigolds. <laughs> <laughs> it's 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 rightfully a classic. It's rightfully a classic. 
So the following day, we find Kara patrolling the shopping centre, spying on some some teenage girls. And it's not long before she's sinking her teeth in broad daylight with a witness. Uh, she walks away face covered in blood. But we never expected Kara to be discreet, did we? No, I think she's one of the least, least discreet vampires. <laughs> what do you think it is with Kara? Is it just that she's not much, got much going on in her brain? <laughs> is, that, is that a too polite way of putting it? I think partly that, and she hasn't had anyone to sort of help her and guide her, but then I guess most of the other vampires we sort of see in the church haven't had that sort of proper introduction, because obviously Kara got turned and was with Herrick, Mm. and then she lost that sort of route that she had. So I think she's probably just tumbled, sort of, yeah. I find Kara like the female Seth. Because obviously we we kind of know Kara's backstory because she worked in the hospital and like Herrick recruited her, and obviously took advantage of you know her naivety or whatever. We I kind of sense that he did that with Seth because Seth Seth's an idiot too. <laughs> <laughs> we don't we don't get the backstory for Seth, but I can imagine it's totally that kind of situation. Yeah, they are. I've never actually thought of them as similar in that way. Ah, oh, yeah, they're like. Brother and sister idiot. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, so at the new found out, Annie is reminiscing. George brings drinks to the table and prompted by Annie, George asks about Hugh's relationship with Kirsty. We sat next to each other, Hugh says, in double history. She was blonde, gorgeous, talented. And then we soon pick up that Annie has a thing against blondes. Yeah. (laughs) I've not always liked that line. (laughs) Uh, Annie is once again in the middle of two emotional men who can't talk about their feelings. (laughs) And who just want to drink and forget about it. Yeah, just to solve their problems. And then George goes, women, they just don't appreciate solid, stable, reliable men. Annie is exactly where she was back in the... Two scenes ago with George and Mitchell. She's just in the middle of two men being idiots. Not quite to the extent of the real hustle scene, but not far off. Mitchell is doing another shifty meet-up with the chief constable. There's an exchange of money, but the man in the coma has woken up, we are informed. Wilson says he can sort it. It's the death of the girlfriend we need to deal with, and for that we need Quinn. And he grabs a package from the dashboard and hands it over to Mitchell. He says, what is it? And he goes, leverage. <laughs> I love it. I love how like being human as a show can be full of such assholes, <laughs> And yet they're so watchable. Yeah, and you can't help but love them. I mean, I don't... I wouldn't say I love Wilson. No. Because he, he's a corrupt chief constable. No, but the majority of them you can love. <laughs> yeah. Uh, the, the more, more the supernatural ones we can love. And next, we're at the market, and George and Annie have stalked. Sorry, I mean found Kirsty. George is instructed to talk to her. George asks Kirsty for flowers, but she has all the customer service nows of Etsy. <laughs> Kirsty says, "I used to be found flamboyant, but I can't be asked now. I wish I could say that at work. <laughs> so do I. <laughs> wish I would." Yeah, and Annie goes, bloody hell, she's deader than I am. 
at the hospital, Mitchell sees Lucy talking to Marcus, the attack victim, and we hear her say, you described him as them as being vampires. She hands him a necklace. Now, this is a very small but subtle thing. She hands him a necklace with the Star of David on. I think that's sort of the first sort of inkling that something's not quite right with her. Yeah. In terms of sort of knowing about the supernatural elements. Yeah. And then she catches Mitchell outside the window looking in. Another great slapstick moment for Aiden. Just pretend yeah, to see someone it... in the different in the distance. <laughs> Not obvious at all <laughs> that he was watching. Uh, it's sometimes with it's just the little things that just tickle you, and that that is one of those moments where he just goes, Oh, oh hi. Yeah, hi. <laughs> but yeah, like you say, this is kind of the biggest clue we've had that Lucy has an ulterior motive, maybe. Yeah, because before that, you haven't really seen anything. No. I mean, she's she's very up and down in her moods and, and where she is in conversation with Mitchell. But, it, it, yeah, it, it's ne- this is more explicit, I suppose. Yeah, showing that she's sort of... She... <laughs> oh, I'm not going to spoil it. <laughs> <laughs> so, at the market... At the market... Um, Hot Kirk, deceased, is spying, sorry, hanging around Kirsty, due to some washing up, has solved the case in an instant. Uh, Kirsty also has a dating ad in the paper. Remember those days? Ads in the paper, eh? Uh, do they still do them? I don't know. They can't do. Not in the paper. Surely not. I don't know. I, I can't believe people still buy papers, but you know. Yeah, so in her dating app i was about to say app there you go dating inbox and that's i don't know if that's a metaphor or not i don't know but her her dating inbox is empty and she has a little cry oh poor kirsty Kirsty, poor hugh they they are meant for each other aren't they they're just perfect and you see her when she's washing up you see her sort of put the i think it's is it a plate or is it a cup she sort of puts it down and then she actually goes and realises she's got to dry it up. Yeah. So you realise that she does actually have, still has a love for Hugh because obviously that was one of the things that he was complaining about earlier in the conversation with George. Do you know those like drainers on a training board The where you can put your, your plates upright and your cutlery and your cups upside down and stuff so it drains? I came home from work one day and my girlfriend had taken it away. Now, I'm going to get like Hugh now. I'm going to, I'm livid. <laughs> Absolutely livid. So now, when you put the plates down, you pile another plate on, you know, on it and on it and another on plate. Top. And it, so when you go to dry it, they're just all wet. Yeah, we've, we've not got a draining board, or we've not got a, one of those. We've just got the draining board and it does upset me. Yeah. I'm with you. So now we've reached a compromise. Literally, like a few days ago, she said, well, I don't want a whole big one. I will have a little rack for the plates and a little thing for the cutlery, but I don't want... I don't know why. She says, I don't want my cups in... What are they called? You know what I mean. Yeah. I can't even think what they're called. I can't think of the proper word. But she said, I don't want the cups in there. I want the cups separately. I'm like, fine. But, you know, we need to drain the the plates. Because what happens is... The tea towel gets wet instantly, so you go to yeah. you go to dry the next one, and you, you're just making it worse. 
Yeah, it's soaking wet by the time we've done three plates. <laughs> you don't actually end up drying anything. I'm glad you understand my pain. <laughs> okay, right. Anyway, yes. So Mitchell is on for, up for another shady meeting, and this time it is with Coroner Quinn at the Harborside. He has not changed his mindset. He suggests Mitchell will just accept it and walk away. One man, Quinn, who is clear on his morality, and Mitchell, who is much more blurred, who who knows the difference between right or wrong, but he's just thinking about keeping the vampires in line. And he says, if we're exposed, there'll be huge suffering on both sides. History has shown us that. Even though he doesn't want to do it, he hands Quinn the envelope. It's a bit of a low blow with the envelope. Oh yeah, he does it so reluctantly. Uh, it is a picture of his grandchildren that he actually mentioned for the first time last week. And he says, as long as you comply, nothing will happen to them. So Quinn's hands are tied. He has to do what Mitchell wants. Yeah, bless him. <laughs> Just feel so sorry for him because he doesn't want to do it. But obviously his grandchildren are one of the most important things in his life and he doesn't want to see them hurt. It's a hollow victory as Mitchell walks away, but he's stopped in his tracks as Quinn announces... Those girls at the shopping centre, they were only 15. They were children, Mitchell, and this total news to Mitchell. What girls? The girls with their throats ripped out in the alley this morning. Are you losing count? Let me help you. That's three dead this week. Everything about this episode, as I, as I mentioned, like the fallout of uh, Herrick dying, is all coming to a culmination this episode. And it just, the way it accelerates from the beginning to the end is so brilliant, I think. Yeah. Mitchell just has realised Herrick's purpose, I think. <laughs> yeah, to clean up the yeah. mess of others. <laughs> and you actually just sort of, you do realise how quickly it's sort of unravelling. Mm. The fact that there's three people have died, soon to be four, and all because of Herrick. Right, yeah, George, yeah, it's George's fault. George and Herrick. At the old church, Mitchell was called another meeting, demanded to know who carried out the attack. They were 15, he shouts, and Clara chips in. They were delicious, young, fresh, warm blood. And he says, we had a deal, he says, before punching her right in the face. Now, come on, Mitchell. Low blow. He... Yeah, but she did deserve it. <laughs> he did warn yeah, her. True. And then he says, now who here has a suit? And all of a sudden, we cut to the funeral parlour, they're moving back in and Mitchell again going back down the Herrick lines. He's doing exactly what Herrick was doing. Yeah, using the funeral parlour as a cover up of murders. Yeah, and it's weird how, considering how opposed Mitchell is to what Herrick became, he's carrying out his philosophy. I guess they are sort of similar in certain ways, aren't they? In that sort of terms, that he will end up going back to what Herrick's done in the yeah. past, despite knowing that yeah. it's. And they had that bond, didn't they? Much as Mitchell tried to deny it, that's the thing that Herrick always played on with Mitchell, their bond. That's how he could always win Mitchell over. It's still there. Yeah, even after all these years. In the dark of night, Chief Wilson waits in the roadside while we see medication being administered by someone in a police uniform. The surviving victim of the attack, Marcus, is having wires pulled from him. At the same time, Quinn is being asked to sign the report on the two girls killed at the shopping centre. Yeah, you can just see in his face that he really doesn't want to do it. <laughs> uh, the chief meets up with the spiker and exchanges money with him. 
He also hands over the statement, which he burns with his lighter. It's quite a harrowing moment, this bit, because then it cuts to the press conference and the chief constable declares there was no foul play and there was likely a suicide pact between the couple. And the close-up of him, as we hear the mother grieving into the microphone, is it's pretty sinister. Yeah, there's sort of no, hardly any remorse there, or sort of, you'd expect him to sort of look quite upset, mm. but there's just, yeah, as you say, it's sinister. And then soon, another shifty meet-up, an episode full of them, Mitchell meets up with the Chief Constable. Wilson says, I expect you to be grateful that once again I've cleared up your shit. The girls have criminal records, the ones that were in the shopping centre, and then he gives a horrible viewpoint. Stick with repeat offenders and it's a (laughs) win-win. It's not the greatest of tactics, (laughs) but I guess guess for them it's slightly easier for repeat offenders to disappear rather than sort of having to cover up people that haven't got any offences sort of under their names. Yeah, and again it's it's going back who end up it's dying. going back to working out the mechanics that we were told about in series one in the, when Mitchell would say, Oh, we've got people everywhere. We we're seeing behind the scenes now and it's it's not a nice world. No. <laughs> not uh, at all. The constable says what happened to Balfour, Marcus Balfour, was unfortunate. He was collateral damage. But the main thing is the system in place. This is how it works. It's a great scene. The bit that I think sums up the Chief Constable Wilson as a character when he walks away. Again, another walk away moment. And he just throws the plastic cup into the sidings. Yeah, not caring at all. I guess that's sort of what he's like, sort of a bit of throwaway. Yeah, what an arsehole. <laughs> Annie and George are in the living room discussing Hugh's love life. And we catch a glimpse of one of the mics that's secretly recording them. Uh, the new mission for George is now to go on a date with Kirsty and be absolutely shit. Oh, I can't do that, George says. Well, of course you can. Look at the fuck up you made of your last relationship, Annie said. That, that is a very un-Annie line. <laughs> yes, normally she's really sympathetic and caring and, yeah, it's complete opposite of her, how she is normally. She's sort of just like, get on with it. You've got to do it. In the listings, George strikes gold and finds Der Todd dist Hunderstagenskunskus. That's not how it's pronounced. A three and a half hour subtitled art film. I was going to Google what this what this stands for, what this means, and I'm going to do it now. So, Der Todd. This is live action Googling, guys. There's, what a word, Unter, Hold, Ung, Gunsters. This is going to be totally made up, isn't it? It's not even going to be a thing. Stunksglers. It is. I'm really intrigued to find out what it is. It's all in German. How rude. (laughs) (laughs) I think it genuinely is a film. Bear with me, guys. This is what you come to this podcast for. Oh, you'll never guess what it it means. Death of the Entertainment Artist. Oh. There you go. We've learned something today, kids. There you go. Okay, so Mitchell is roaming the hospital again. I don't know how, like, no one's noticed how he just goes everywhere and just stares at hospital beds. Yeah, he seems to be everywhere. He has way too much access. And not yeah. sort of in one place. Yeah, that's what I thought. Uh, Lucy is looking at the body of Marcus. I spoke to him. 
There is no way that he was suicidal. And she's analysing the idiosyncrasies of the police story and knows it doesn't add up. And Mitchell asks, you need to get, says, you need to get out of this place. Are you asking me out in the mortuary? Well, we did meet in the toilet, so. (laughs) (laughs) Most romantic places, morgues and toilets. (laughs) It's weird how this episode so far, how dark it's been. And then we get a couple of dates. On the first date, yeah. George is waiting for Kirsty in the fucking horrible leather jacket and God knows what trousers. He looks like a Christian who's let himself go. <laughs> but it turns out Kirsty loves German cinema and entertainment artists dying, obviously. But on a, another unsuccessful date, it's two for one scrumpy at a pub and Mitchell is being vacant and weird with Lucy. Uh, she asks why he's a cleaner. He says, I like the anonymity. The awkwardness is only broken up by a Phil Collins drum solo from the stage. It's she can't she can't get any information out of him. He's just it's like he doesn't want to be there because of all the shit that's going on. And yeah, he's more sort of obviously invested in what's going on with the vampires than going on a date with Scrumpy. Three and a half hours later, and a death of a entertainment artist later. It's time for kebab and a kiss. Mmm, nice meaty kiss. Uh, But first, George's poem. My heart yearns for your fragrant hair. The smell of life. The smell of love. The smell of kebab. (laughs) So it turns out she likes really long German films. She likes kebab. And she likes weird looking Christians. Yeah, I think the date slightly backfired on George. Trust, trust George to be successful with women when he's not trying. Yeah. It's exactly the opposite of his, his, his motif. Even in success, he's unsuccessful with women. Um, <laughs> oh dear, I love George. Mitchell drops Lucy off home and the atmosphere is frosty to say the least. Uh, we dance around each other for weeks. We finally go for a drink and you barely speak. You know what, I'm knackered. It's been a long day. Lots of dead people. And she goes into the house. But as Mitchell walks away, she gives that same kind of look that she did in that first episode of Series 2, where she kind of, when Mitchell walked out of the bathroom and she kind of gave a bit of a look and then Mitchell walked back in. It's a very knowing smile. Mm. So she must obviously know that there's rumblings in the vampire community. So she probably knows that's why he's not as invested as he probably was and I like the way on. Mitchell says oh I get it you're pissed off of me it's like no really <laughs> really Mitchell uh, at the house uh, George and Mitchell are in the kitchen and George knows that the funeral parlour has been reopened as he walked past it yesterday this senses Lloyd from Senso's listening in to make an urgent call Mitchell defends himself I had no choice the microphone that is attached to George's glasses can't pick up what's being said because he's kind of cleaning them and then it gets washed down the sink. I I don't know how they didn't notice <laughs> the microphone. <laughs> Especially when he was washing it off his glasses. Because surely you'd notice that little mark sort of sitting in the sink. Yeah. But then I wonder if he was t- too distracted by Mitchell to notice. Yeah. <laughs> So Mitchell again goes about the system that it's not in place anymore. The whole system's fucked. And George is pretty calm in this scene, I would go with. And he says, so killing's okay again. And Mitchell reveals a long-term plan to help them get off blood. It's a mess, I know. 
I know it is, but I'm doing the best I can. I need you to understand that. And George gives kind of a resigned sigh. What about us, he says. I could really do with having my best friend back. Under the circumstances, I really feel like I could have done with a bit more support from you. Yeah, you do feel sorry for George because sort of his relationship has broken down and he just wanted some support from his best mate. Yeah. And he's not had it at all. Mitchell looks like he's properly about to snap, but he settles on cold, hard honesty. I can't hold your hand through it. No one can. This sort of echoes the real hustle scene to some extent in that the conversation shifts from the grand vampire-based plans to the personal friendship issues between the two. I think Mitchell handles it a bit better this time. Do you think Mitchell was harsh or just straight down the line? Um, At first it seems a bit harsh, but then obviously he sort of says, hmm. I'm doing it sort of out of love. So you sort of go, well, actually, yeah, he's he means well by doing it and saying to George you need to you need to do it yourself I can't yeah I can't be with you the yeah, whole this time this is an episode that I think partly due to their separation it highlights where they both are in life like they're a totally different place and it does kind of feel like they are drifting apart and it could be irreparable yeah but it's, it's sort of the start of what's going to happen in the next few episodes with them coming apart more and more because of Mitchell getting more with the vampires and obviously George going elsewhere. Now at the funeral parlour Mitchell drags Kara from her captivity stating it's time. He's set to punish Kara for her crimes uh, crimes, but he has an unexpected audience including Daisy. Daisy says justice has to be seen to be done Mitchell or what's the point? He drags Kara out of the room. Meanwhile, at the market, at the market, what's I doing, Bob the Builder? Anyway, doesn't matter. Bob the market. Uh, George is being also being dragged by Annie towards Kirsty, and she says, "Come on, too strong. You proposed to her. Name your first children." George's under breath dialogue here is wonderful. Shoot me, shoot me, please, with a rifle. Cut my head off. Put it on a spike. Carry it through the village so everybody can take turns to spit at my face. <laughs> uh, Kirsty is excited to see him but George can't carry on with the facade I'm lying to you, the thing is I'm in love with someone else he gives a heartfelt speech that is all about Nina to himself and Hugh to her maybe this is how people learn and it seems like he kind of took Mitchell's words on board yeah, because he realises that he's got to sort it out himself and not Either rebound or... Yeah. So turning to Annie, he says, it's our own lives we need to mend. Nobody else's. And another little comedic moment, because he's looking straight at Annie, you can see Kirsty's head just pop into screen and go, where are you looking? <laughs> yeah, George, George doesn't sort of... Because I noticed it earlier um, when he's talking to Hugh, and he says about um, who the hell's Kirsty, mm. and George just automatically says it when he was talking to Annie and he he doesn't seem to sort of <laughs> he sort of forgets that there's other yeah. people up, he is that other terrible people can't see hiding Annie. the fact that there's a ghost in the room he did it with Bernie as well he's just terrible and uh, with Owen around he just can't people must yeah. think he should be locked up in an institute uh, he mentions the importance of a second chance while a second chance by Richard Wells plays and it's all very lovely it could be overly sweet if you ask me if this had been a lighter episode but i think for a episode that had murders and police corruption and attacks in public and and 
bribery, I think it's a nicely placed thread that runs through the episode because I think they've earned it because it's quite a a neat little tie up at the end, really, isn't it? That Hugh and Kirsty story. Yeah, it's sort of a light bit of the episode. You go, well, actually, yeah. it's not all yeah. sort of dark and murders, and there is a chance of love and and I guess happiness <laughs> somewhere. Watching it this time, I thought where Annie left episode two being invisible again, she is actually coping quite well. I thought a lot of, you know, with hindsight, you could have done episode three as Annie's story being downbeat and downtrodden and upset again, but then you'd be you'd be going back on old ground of series one, wouldn't you? So I guess they decided to they decided to turn it to a positive yeah, and get George she... and her together to do something positive. No, it is, it is good that they've changed it slightly so she's not, as you say, sort of down. She's trying to do something positive and change. Down in the life. cave somewhere, Kara is being dragged to the depths with the bonus of a history lesson about how vampires were treated in the plague, i.e. kind of what we saw at the flashback at the beginning. And he says, like a sick joke, we adopted it as a form of punishment to ourselves. Uh, Mitchell picks up a brick, gathers himself, brick in hand, as Kara weeps in distress. I'm sorry, I don't want to do this, but I have no choice. There's a lovely shot of the shadow of him and Kara as he carries out the deed and like smacks the brick into Kara's face. Mitchell makes his exit and Kara is not dead when he leaves. Then Mitchell slams Kara's newly independent teeth on the table in front of the baying audience. And he says, Kara's been executed. Then come the chance of the king is dead. Long live the king. Now, what I notice about this scene is Daisy doesn't join in because I don't think she believes because obviously she wanted to be a witness. Now, Mitchell has just dragged Kara away from everyone. Yeah, I noticed that as well. I, yeah, yeah. She, I don't think she truly believes it. And she obviously doesn't really trust him anyway. Because there's a set of teeth, as we know, that's not evidence that she's actually dead. Yeah, I mean, yeah, like you say, there's no witnesses. They could be anyone's teeth. And also what I was thinking, does Mitchell really... Has he just left her for dead, thinking she's going to be trapped in there so she'll just die naturally? Because he didn't want to just do it there and then. Or is this plan to go back to her and free her? Or... I don't think in that moment he believes she's dead because he just couldn't carry it out. Yeah. Hmm. <laughs> yeah. As we know what happens in series three, if he had carried out the killing, then his life would have been yeah, a lot easier then that again. Would have happened. Again, he's just making life <laughs> difficult for himself. But a distressed Kara can hear the new coronation happening above her. Back in a slightly happier land, Scylla Black, or Annie as we know her, is watching on as Hugh and Kirsty rekindle their relationship. It's a bittersweet smile. She's happy for Hugh, but obviously we can't just forget that in the last episode there was a chance of Annie and Hugh being a thing. Yeah, I think she's upset that it never, ha- it couldn't happen because obviously she's now invisible, but she was a ghost. Oh, she is a ghost, but um, I think she's happy that Hugh has now got. Yeah, some it's, sort it's, of happiness. Yeah, it's bittersweet, isn't it? She's tried to, like we were just saying, she's tried to make a positive out of a negative. At the house, George is helping himself to some depressing-looking sandwiches. They're sandwiches to reflect his mood as the phone rings, and lo and behold, it's Nina. 
I can't talk for very long. I'm ringing to say goodbye properly. Listen, there are some things I need to say to you. You need to stop using the curse as an excuse to not live your life. Even find love again one day. Both are filling up with tears as she speaks. I want you to promise me you'll start to live your life now. George desperately asked if she's coming back. George, I need you to promise me. They declare their love and George asks, what are you going to do? And she responds, something wonderful. And then she hangs up. And George is a mess. I was a mess. But I'm a bit conflicted about it in the sense that she's saying, live your life, George. But the problem was him living his life is what led to Nina getting the curse. You, you know what I mean? It, it, it would be the same thing again. Yeah, she, yeah, she's telling him to live her life, or live his life, and she ended up getting the curse. But maybe she's hoping that hmm. he's learned from that mistake and maybe sort of tell the truth in regards to yeah, yeah. who and what he is if he finds the right person. Yeah, so as we see maybe. Nina hang up the phone, Kemp is next to her. God loves you very much. Isn't that right, Professor Jaggart? And the reveal, yeah. Lucy, is Professor Jaggart. Yeah, I remember what, yeah. when I first watched it, sort of going, oh my goodness, no. I didn't sort of no, see it, it coming. it's very well played, and it's also quite an early reveal, I suppose. It's better coming now than just having a whole series of not seeing Professor Jaggart, because that might build up more suspicion. So it kind of pulls the rug from under you. Yeah, and it also means that later, as the episode's go on now we can sort of see the two sides of her so the sensor side and the side that we mm. sort of see with Mitchell in the hospital you can sort of see what she's sort of trying to gain yeah, and I was also wondering him. in that conversation it felt like a bit of a, a call from prison to a loved one in the sense that how much of what Nina was saying was spoon fed to her to say yeah they might have yeah I never thought <laughs> I never thought of that because they could have been yeah. planting it so it went in the direction that they wanted as opposed to sort of just leaving George to get on with it. Yeah. And but I don't know, sort of what naturally. an ending, what a reveal, what an episode. It's certainly up there as one of the best yes. episodes, I think. I it think really is. The fact it that George favorites. and Annie are forming a friendship, Mitchell is going off the scale, going off the deep end. His relationship with, with George is quite conflicted. The fact that there's an arsehole baddie in it in the, in the form of Chief Constable. Yeah, it just feels like everything's spiralling out of control. Yeah, and I guess it's sort of the start, as you say, is spiralling out of control for the next few episodes because it just, it's constant sort of from now on, isn't it, really? A big thank you to Lauren for coming on the pod for the first time. The thing that me and Lauren couldn't name is quite simply called a draining board rack. I mean, it's not rocket science, is it? It's pretty damn obvious. If you want to be an honorary old one and come on the show and talk about an episode of Being Human, you can contact me at boxtunnelpod at gmail.com. We can be found on Tumblr, Facebook and Instagram as the Box Tunnel Survivors Group and on Twitter as Box Tunnel Pod. You can become a recruit and like or follow on your app of choice. The podcast is also on Ko-fi, which is a place where you can... Donate a little bit of money. It could be £1, it could be £100. It doesn't have to be £100. And that just basically goes towards the cost of running the podcast. It's not as cheap as you think it is. That can be found on the link tree. 
any donations will be gratefully received and they will go towards running the podcast. We will sign out as we sign in with Dog Scratch Deer by Henry's Funeral Shoe. Until next time, it's been a long day. Lots of dead people. was the Box Tunnel Podcast, and thanks.